0: Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. This is episode five in August 2020. As I explained in episode one, I'm trying to strike a balance here in terms of providing discussions in conversations that will both be interesting to other experts in the laws of war, but at the same time be accessible, interesting, and even helpful to students and non-experts in the field. To be honest, I think that so far, I'm erring on the side of catering to the experts, and I'll be trying to do a better job of stepping in to explain or have my guests explain points or issues that may not be clear to the non-expert. But if any of you, the listeners, have ideas on how to make the podcast better, please do drop me a line. My contact info is on the website, along with lots of interesting background material related to the podcast, by the way. So if you haven't visited it yet, please do so at jibjabpodcast.com. And if you're liking the podcast, please do take a moment to rate it on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. And more importantly, share it on social media or tell your colleagues about it. So in this episode, I'm speaking with Professor Eric Talbot Jensen, who is well known to all of the experts in this area of the law, but for everyone else, Eric is a professor of law at BYU Law School, He was recently on leave from BYU, serving as special counsel to the Department of Defense General Counsel's Office, and had a career in the Army as both a cavalry officer and a member of the JAG Corps before joining the academy a decade or so ago. As a JAG officer, he served in a number of positions, including the chief of the Army's international law branch, Deputy Legal Advisor to the Task Force for Baghdad, and he taught international law at the JAG Legal Center and School. Since joining the Academy, Eric has continued to specialize in the law of armed conflict and international criminal law, with a focus recently on cyber issues and autonomous weapon systems. He was, for instance, one of the group of experts that produced the famous Talon Manual on international law related to cyber warfare. So the primary focus of our discussion today is a recent article of Eric's on the question of whether the law of armed conflict requires that human judgment be involved in targeting and other decisions relating to the use of legal force. The title of the article is The Erroneous Requirement for Human Judgment and Error in the Law of Armed Conflict, published earlier this year in the journal International Law Studies. Now in this article, Eric argues in short that the law of armed conflict, that is LOAC or IHL, or use in Babo, remember that all three of these terms basically refer to the same body of law does not currently require that there be human judgment in the operation of weapon systems and that therefore autonomous weapon systems are not per se unlawful that indeed autonomous weapon systems may in fact be more compliant with ihl or result in fewer errors and thus less harm to civilians and so forth and he goes further to argue that there should thus be no prohibition on the continued research and development of such weapon systems. Now, as you'll hear, I pushed back quite a bit on that part of the argument, and we spent some time exploring the extent to which we should pause research and development until we first resolve ethical questions about whether we want weapon systems running on artificial intelligence, having the autonomy to decide to target and kill human beings. I think you'll find it a fascinating conversation. So with that, I give you Eric Jensen. Eric Jensen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for inviting me. So as I indicated uh, in our correspondence before we got started, my first question is really to ask you to share something with us that some of your colleagues, most of your colleagues wouldn't know about you.
1: So uh, I had to think about that. Uh, I guess maybe two things. One, uh, I've been to all seven continents, and uh, that makes me a little unique because not many people have been to all seven continents. Uh, but maybe the other one that's a little more uh, frivolous is I am a huge Star Wars fan. I mean, I I am like I dress up for the premieres with my family. We go <laughs> the night before. We we do the whole thing, Craig. So uh, if I, I don't do all of the I don't follow the universe of Star Wars stuff, but the movies themselves, I am a huge fan.
0: Well, that begins to explain your fascination with autonomous weapons. <laughs>
1: You know, I hadn't thought about that, but that does make, that just put me in a pile of people who are technologically optimistic, right? Because I'm I'm looking forward to that life. That's pretty well,
0: funny. The Death Star, I'm not so sure about optimism there. <laughs> so before you joined the Academy, you were both a, a line officer in the Army, but then uh, I gather you were also a JAG and had a pretty illustrious career in the JAG Corps. And so I was wondering if you might explain a little bit about how you came to make the transition to the Academy.
1: Sure. So, I uh, when I was in uh, my undergrad, I knew. I, I the last semester, I the well, last year, I worked for a professor as his teaching assistant, and it just kind of got in my blood. I really enjoyed the classroom environment. Felt like I was good at it. That it that it, uh, lent to my strengths as opposed to my weaknesses. Uh, but I had already committed to go in the military at that point. So we figured we would. Uh, I was married at the time. We would go into the military for a few years and then get out and go to graduate school. So. I went into the military. It was a cavalry officer in Germany. In fact, my unit was on the border when the, the wall came down. Wow. We, when we pulled off the border in uh, in what was then Czechoslovakia, uh, no one replaced us. We, we just left and that was it. The border was down. Uh, and that was quite uh, quite an experience in, uh, in January 1990. But then uh, I heard about this program where you could... Uh, the government would send you to law school and pay for your law school and you would commit to be a JAG for them for a certain amount of time afterwards. So I applied, got accepted, uh, went to law school and then spent the rest of my military career as a JAG officer.
0: Wow. As I gather from your bio uh, on, your, on the BYU website, you had some pretty interesting postings as a JAG officer.
1: Well, I, f- I feel like I was pretty lucky. In that most JAG officers kind of hop between disciplines, so you'll do criminal law, then administrative law. One of the benefits of the JAG Corps is that it gives you a very wide practice. But I I knew from the beginning I wanted to do international law, and I was able to really keep myself uh, in international law jobs, with the last job being the, the chief of international law for the Army. And, you know, I mean, the Army does a lot of international law, so it was, it was a really exciting job, uh, full of interesting things. I worked with great people like Dick Jackson and others, you know, who, who are giants in the field, uh, Hayes Parks. Uh, it, it, was, so it was a great experience. Uh, and, and then uh, it set me up perfectly because I had also taught at the Army's JAG school. Uh, the Army also sent me to Yale for my L.M., so I was really kind of preparing myself to make that transition. So when I got out of the Army, I went and taught at Fordham for a couple of years
0: and then, uh, then to BYU where I am now. Well then, if Star Wars doesn't explain it, that certainly explains the interest in law of armed conflict, international humanitarian law. That's true. So we're going to discuss your recent article on whether human judgment is required by IHL in targeting decisions and the like. But I thought that before we sort of get into the weeds, you might explain just a little bit about the means and methods of warfare and the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, uh, the CCW, to sort of set up the context?
1: Sure. So, uh, of course, the use of weapons in warfare is not unregulated. Uh, Since we've been using weapons, there have been rules about the use of them in conflict, Uh, most of them kind of reciprocal gentlemen's agreements. But uh, as we got farther into uh, know, particularly the the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, we began to codify some of these rules. Uh, And as part of those rules, there were rules about weapons use and how you could use weapons, what weapons you could use. And that, of course, became more and more necessary as uh, battlefields became more centered around civilian locations, particularly uh, cities or uh, areas with, with civilian populations. One of the uh, outgrowths of that was an establishment of a process by which uh, nations would consult on weapons use, and this this initially was kind of the Hague process. Uh, there, there are lots of Hague rules about what you can and can't do for means and methods. But one of the most important current uh, ways that we monitor and limit weapons use is the the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons that you, meant, you mentioned. This started in 1980. Uh, and it's kind of a framework agreement, and then out of that framework agreement, there are a number of protocols that limit specific weapons, uh, blinding lasers, uh, mines, those kinds of things. And, and what the CCW really provides is a framework for states party to get together and to talk about weapon systems and means and methods of warfare, and to share views and ideas. And then when there is a coalescing of ideas, to uh, create uh, agreements that uh, that often are signed by all the parties and, and then can provide some, some significant limitation on the use of certain weapons.
0: Right. And so I guess to set this up, there are, as you, as you indicated, under the CCW, there are some weapons that are limited or prohibited, and even outside of the CCW, there's a whole host of weapons like chemical weapons, biological weapons that have been prohibited uh, as a matter of international law. But the issue of autonomous weapons has become really a hot issue lately. And so maybe you can just explain a little bit about what the, the state of the debate is and, and why the debate, what what makes it such a hot button issue.
1: Right. So autonomous weapons. I mean, I mean first, I, I love an article by Chris Jenks where he says uh, we, we don't even know what we mean by autonomy in many of these discussions. I mean, trying to get your grasp on what the definition of autonomy or an autonomous weapon is, is, is very difficult as a starting point. And it's, it's such that he's got a great quote in one of his, uh, one of his law review articles that basically says the the state's party at the CCW can't even agree what they disagree about because they don't even have a common understanding of what autonomy is. So, I think as a starting point to our discussion, you have to accept that principle, that, that autonomy is a term that means different things to different people. And sometimes where you stand on that definition uh, makes a difference as to where you stand on the issue of autonomous weapons. But but for the purposes of, of our discussion, maybe the easiest uh, way to limit that is to say that we will think of autonomous weapons as weapons that can select and decide to target on their own without potentially without human control. Right. And so these kinds of weapon systems are already in existing military, uh, military inventories. They're already being used uh, now. Uh, but the idea that, uh, with the, with emerging technologies in robotics and in autonomy, um, this has become particularly in the last 10 years, a point of focus for the CCW, uh, and what, what regulation, if any, should be placed on the production, use, employment of autonomous weapons.
0: Okay, so let's unpack that just a little bit because I think that's a you make a really important point in, in terms of this definitional problem. And when you say that there are already some autonomous weapons in existence, that sort of requires some explanation. But I think that Some people would consider like a phalanx gun on a naval vessel to be an autonomous weapon in the sense that it is programmed to simply fire at incoming missiles. There's some human oversight, but not entirely. The phalanx, once it's locked on, the phalanx uh, operates autonomously, but it's not the kind of autonomous weapon that the debate is really all about, which is this idea that you have drones with AI, that are identifying a target, analyzing the question of whether the target is hostile, whether it is targetable under the laws of armed conflict, and then deciding to uh, bring lethal force to bear on the target. Like that's a whole other dimension of autonomy as I understand it.
1: Well, you know, the CWIS, the, the weapons system you mentioned, as well as the C-RAM, uh, I mean, those they in a sense do that same thing. Uh, if if a ship is completely disabled, that CWIS is capable of defending the ship without any human intervention. Um, so it will search and identify targets, and then make a decision as to whether or not, based on based on that uh, on the target's actions, whether or not it presents a hostile uh, target. So I think that there are again, it's about how you define autonomy, but. Um, it, this is, we're certainly not talking about, uh, you know, the Cylons and Battlestar Galactica. That's, that's not only what we're talking about. That, those might be autonomous weapon systems, but they're, they're not uh, all that we're talking about. Really, we're talking about a broad spectrum of, of weapon systems. Again, some that are already in deployment, some that are, are on, in the process, and others that are still on drawing boards or in people's heads.
0: Right. But the debate, as I understand it, and and full disclosure, this is not an area I've I've spent a lot of time doing research in, but my understanding is that there are a lot of NGOs, there are a lot of organizations, a lot of scholars who uh, are really quite passionately pushing back against this idea of allowing the development of autonomous weapons. They've used the term killer robots. And my understanding is that the concern is that it's not so much with things like a phalanx defense weapon on a, on a naval vessel. It is much more the idea of the drone that is using AI to target human beings as opposed to an incoming missile. Uh, and that is essentially you are going to be we're going to find ourselves in a situation where robots are making decisions and taking actions to kill human beings without any human judgment or, uh, or oversight. And so this is, in essence, what your paper is analyzing is to what, as whether human judgment is required. And so, so maybe you can so walk us through the overarching framework of your argument, and then we can drill down and, and pull out some of the details.
1: Right. So, so and, I, and I agree that, that uh, on the far end, that's the thing that worries people the most, at least at the moment, is, is, for example, a drone or a robot that would make those decisions. I guess my point is that I don't think that's that much different than what we're talking about now. But even taking that example of uh, a system that would select its own target uh, using AI or other sensors on the battlefield and then make a decision whether or not to target something, Um, the the question really for me comes down to, uh, does the law require a human to be there either on the loop or in the loop uh, at the time the system would select the target and engage? And there are many out there, including some of these NGOs that you mentioned, who say that this is a requirement as a matter of law, that the law of armed conflict contains a requirement that this, uh, that this is the case. And, and my argument is, though I come across as an advocate um, for autonomous weapons, my argument really is that the law is not, the law does not make a determination on that issue, that there is no, there's nothing in the law that inherently says a human has to select and target. Uh, that, that just, it, it, there's, there's, I, can't, I mean, people just can't point me to a piece of the law that states have agreed to that says that. Now people can say, well, that's embedded in the idea of proportionality, or that's embedded in the idea of distinction. Uh, I disagree with that. I think that states did not say that. And, and my paper analyzes state comments in the current CCW process about this And it is clear that there is not a consensus on that issue. There is a wide, wide range of state views on the requirements of humans in the process and what it even means to have humans in the process. And so my paper doesn't necessarily go as far as I personally think, but my paper simply says you can't say that the law requires human involvement here because there's no evidence that the law does.
0: Well, so, so we'll circle back to whether you are or not an advocate,
1: <laughs> because I do, I do think... At this point, I think I've given myself up as an advocate, sorry.
0: <laughs> well, because, I mean, just to foreshadow something that I'll come back to towards the end of the conversation, I think that I mean, you, you're quite right that the article starts by exploring and analyzing the question of whether IHL currently has anything within it that prohibits or limits autonomous weapons, or for that matter, requires human judgment to be exercised in the implementation of IHL. But you then go further and argue that because IHL does not contain any such prohibition, there should be no limitation on the research and development of such weapons. And and so just to foreshadow what I'm going to come back to, I mean, I I think that that's a normative argument that needs some defense, right? And, and, And I think one of the issues with that normative argument is that it relies exclusively on this IHL analysis, right? So your article uh, does not quite explicitly, and to be fair to you, you say, look, I'm not considering ethical issues, and you grapple up front with the question, does IHL apply? is this a matter of IHL? And you conclude that it is, right? I think it is. But then I think that you make this sort of move by saying that, well, yes, this is a a matter for IHL without really uh, justifying the move necessarily. You then seem to suggest that it's only a matter of IHL and effectively implying that no other law has anything to say here. And so I want to sort of push back a little bit on that and ask, well, why wouldn't other legal regimes and even other considerations like ethical considerations apply to the question of whether certainly whether we should be developing whether we should be researching and developing such weapons leaving aside whether ihl actually requires human judgment or not
1: yeah no it's it's a really good question and i didn't intend in the paper to say those didn't apply what i intended in the paper to say was i'm not i'm not addressing those issues I, I acknowledge in the paper that for ethical reasons or whatever reason, states could certainly agree to limit the use of autonomous weapons. But what I was trying to respond to were the statements that IHL already currently does limit autonomous weapons. And so my argument was really focused on IHL because I, I feel like those statements are too broad. I don't think there is a clear uh, a clear limitation on the use of autonomous weapons and a clear requirement of human involvement in those decisions. So... I am, I am very happy to have the ethical discussion with you. And I, and I think ethics do play a key role in this. But, the, but my paper was really trying to respond only to the IHL issues. And, you know, states are going to, view, they're going to have a lot of things that they, they consider when they finally come to these decisions, right? It's not just going to be what, what the act says. It's not going to be, uh, you know, what their capabilities are. There's going to be lots of things that fit into that. And I think ethics is, is inevitably going to be one of those questions that we need to address as well.
0: Okay, so since we've already sort of launched into your normative argument, I was going to leave it for the end, but since we're there, why don't we just dive in and we can go back to some of the the finer points of the early part of the paper later. But if you agree that the ethics should be something that that is considered and that states uh, are going to be grappling with these issues, isn't there a danger in advocating and arguing for... Unlimited research and development of the weapon systems. I mean, uh, I mean surely the concerns of the NGOs and, and, and scholars and, and everyone who is concerned about the development of autonomous, fully autonomous weapons, where AI is making decisions to kill people, is that once the genie is out of the bottle, once we have developed these kinds of weapons, it's going to be very difficult to put limitations on them, right? Uh, and so now is the time to be having that conversation. And the, the precautionary principle would suggest that we ought to be cautious, uh, you know, before uh, opening the door to something that we can't, you know, we, we can't close the door on later.
1: Yeah, I think this is a this is a really good argument, but but I think historically. I mean, there are a number of weapon systems, right, that we have researched and developed, and and the, the genie might have been out of the bottle, but we've put the genie back in. I mean, nuclear weapons, biological weapons, chemical weapons, landmines. There are lots of weapon systems out there that we have developed, researched, and used, uh, and then said after use, look, this isn't really where we want to be. Let's put that genie back in the bottle, and let's not use those. I mean, the fact that the last, nu- the last atomic weapon was detonated in the 1940s, and we're now in the 2020s, is is i think a great argument to the fact that humans can exhibit can exercise control on weapon systems that they research and develop and figure out what the full scale of them are now from my perspective i am a technology optimist so i don't view uh, autonomous weapons and artificial intelligence in the same way i view nuclear weapons i think that they hold lots of promise in fact the kind of the, the real underlying assumption of my paper is that as we increase the artificial intelligence and autonomous uh, functions in weapon systems, we will get better and better at target selection and target identification and at engaging. Uh, you know, the you think about what we would do without precision-guided munitions. Well, those are very heavily technology-aided. Um, the change from a non—you know, now we have people who are, who are arguing that dumb bombs are unlawful under the, under the LOAC and that everybody has to use— precision-guided munitions because they're so much more accurate. I think that, that we could, through the use of technology, become even more accurate. And I base this partly on the fact that I've been in battle, I mean, I've been shot at directly by people, I've had weapon, uh, missiles launched on me, and i got to tell you, uh, I have very little confidence that humans are doing a fantastic job at applying the LOAC, right? Uh, I think they're doing a good job, and I think that, that that's fine. But, but I believe that we could build autonomous weapons that could do better, and tied to a very rigorous weapons review process, I think we could actually move the ball forward and have greater low act compliance with the use of these weapons systems. And if that's a possibility, why not see? Why not develop? Why not see where we can get with these weapon systems? why cut it off now when they hold the promise of uh, of making our application of law even better?
0: So I guess there, I mean, there's two aspects to that answer that I think I, I want to separate and, and tackle uh, one at a time. And the first is this idea that we can put genes back in the bottle. I right? sort of want to push back a little bit on the idea that we have put the nuclear weapons gene back in the bottle. I mean, a lot of people would, would suggest that while we haven't Detonated one we haven't used a nuclear weapon in armed conflict since Hiroshima and Nagasaki the 75th anniversary of which is next week you know as the nuclear weapon states argued in the ICJ nuclear weapons case they've been using it every day uh, as a matter of deterrence and you know we're currently in the process of upgrading nuclear weapon systems at exorbitant cost to society uh, and so I'm not sure that genie has been put back in the bottle. And even, you know, as Syria indicated, the chemical weapons is not yet back in the bottle. And, and, you know, you mentioned mines and cluster munitions, two of the protocols under the CCW that the United States has, has not signed on to. So I, I guess I would push a little bit back on the idea that it's easy to put these genies back in the bottle. But added to that, I think that the concern that people have when thinking about fully autonomous weapons with AI, machine learning, where the weapon system is not only making decisions and implementing those decisions, but learning and learning in ways that the, the programmers who made them do not understand, and that these sort of intelligent robots—these, you know, the a provocative term—is qualitatively different than any other kind of weapon system we're talking about, right? And that we're crossing some kind of Rubicon in having robots killing human beings. And again, to invoke the idea of laws or ethical imperatives outside of IHL, I mean, we you think of Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics, this is, this is violating the first... The first law of robotics, right? That robots shall not injure human beings. We're actually designing robots to kill human beings. And that this is somehow uh, given that these are also going to be intelligent mechanisms that are capable of learning and developing, that this raises a specter that people think, you know, before we do this, we ought to be very sure about what we're up
1: to. Yeah, so first of all, I love your uh, mention of Asimov. That, that would be on my book list of recommended reading for people who are considering autonomous weapons. I, <laughs> I, I love the Foundation books. Those, uh, I've read those all at least twice. Uh, that's, those are great books uh, to make your head spin. Uh, but, you know, in a sense, we're coming at this from, from different directions. Uh, if, if you're willing to just narrow the discussion to AI weapons that learn on the battlefield, then for me, that's a victory because that opens up a whole bunch of other weapons that are now currently trying to be, you know, that there are groups trying to limit. So if, if, you're, if you're willing to go with me and say everything that isn't AI driven and learning on the battlefield is in, okay, that's victory for me. And now let's focus on AI driven weapons. And then the, the concern that they learn on the battlefield and will adapt as they go. I recognize that this is an issue, but I don't think it's an insurmountable issue. If they, will, if they will adapt on the battlefield, they will also adapt during the testing phase. Which means if we put them, if we apply the weapons review principles and put them through rigorous, ongoing, continuous testing, including, you know, at, at some point when they've been approved, we put them out on the battlefield, then bring them back and test them again and make sure they're still okay. If we will commit ourselves to that, then, then that weapons review process will, will do its best and do as best as we can to keep bad things happening. And, and I think that's what the law requires. Currently, states could, again, change that view, but but that's what the law requires. And we can comply with those aspects of the law with even artificial intelligence-aided weapons.
0: Okay. So so this opens up a whole other issue. So I'll come circle back around to the second part of your first answer about
1: <laughs> whether... Not about foundation. You don't want to have a conversation about the foundation books. That's not <laughs> where you're going.
0: Well, we'll come back to the foundation books too, I guess. <laughs> I mean, so there's two aspects here that we we need to sort of explore. I mean, the first is your earlier answer that autonomous weapon systems may be more compliant with IHL and may do a better job of protecting civilians, for example, and and adhering to the principle of uh, distinction and principles of proportionality in ways that ought to make us want to use autonomous weapons. So there's that, and I'll come back to that. But uh, I mean, I guess related to that, you just raised this issue about weapons review uh, processes. Right. And and this goes to, I mean, you explore in the paper, the question of uh, sort of both accountability, but also predictability and reliability of weapons. And you point out that the you know, additional protocol one of the Geneva Conventions requires states to review weapons to ensure that they are compliant with IHL. But again, you know, as I was reading your paper, I'm thinking, yeah, but surely there's a difference between testing. Again, like a failings a family's gun, uh, and it if it performs in the review, and you put it out in the field, you have some confidence that it's going to uh, perform precisely as it did in testing. But when you're talking about autonomous weapons, and again, to your point, I'm talking about autonomous weapon systems that use machine learning and some and, and develop and learn. There is you, you can't be that confident that it's going to perform in the battlefield exactly as it did under review because it's learning and developing, right? And as we know from all sorts of other realms in which AI is being used today, including law enforcement, biases start to creep in to the operation of these AI and they start to perform in ways that were not predicted and in fact are not fully understood by the very people that programmed them. So what benefit is the review process when the weapon system is potentially going to change as soon as you put it in the battlefield.
1: So Craig, let me respond with two things. First of all, how confident are you that that human that you uh, have sent through law of war training and then send out on the battlefield is going to perform to standard? I mean, really how confident are you having, having been in that situation uh, a lot, I can tell you that your confidence may be overbroad and that, that soldiers who are, uh, who are subject to emotion, subject to how they're going to react when they just saw their buddy killed, who uh, have that sense of, of self-defense and survival as their paramount uh, sense that shuts down all of their bodily and brain functions and takes over. I mean, all these things, subject to hunger, subject to, to being tired, to exhaustion, all that stuff. I mean, you, I think you're giving humans an awful lot of credit to say that humans don't have these same... Issues And now you're expecting me to be able to say, no, no, A weapons review process will be 100% <laughs> percent certain, uh, percent certain that not a single autonomous weapon will ever make a bad decision. I mean, in, in my mind, if that's the standard you set all weapons up to, no weapons will meet that, right? Wind blows off uh, weapons all the time. PGMs uh, get misguided. All this stuff happens all the time. War is ugly and horrific. And, and no one hates war like soldiers. Uh but it is the fact of warfare. And so if, if the standard is that, that to feel an autonomous weapon, it has to be right 100% of the time, I'm still not willing to give up on that. I still think we can get there, but I'm just saying that seems like a really high bar you're setting for that weapon system as opposed to the current weapon systems, you're happy to fling out on the battlefield all the time. Right, so I guess that,
0: I mean, that brings us back to the accountability question, because I mean, to answer your question, I'm not at all confident that individuals, that human beings, um, are, are going to comply with IHL with a high percentage of uh, fidelity, right? And, and I've written on, on some of the paradoxes of drone operators, for example, end up for reasons that you know, can only be explained through, I think, cognitive psychological theories as to why they would be making more mistakes than like an F-14 pilot who, who is acting under a lot more pressure alone without nearly as much data. So I get that human beings make a lot more mistakes, but I think that the reason, again, that people are nervous, concerned uh, about autonomous weapons is that, again, it's, it's the very fact that you are delegating, relinquishing human control. Humans are not perfect. Humans make mistakes, but humans are accountable, and the law applies to human beings in ways that we're not sure they would apply to weapon systems that potentially go rogue. So let's talk a little bit about the accountability issue and and whether, and this is where I think a lot of people say, well, the reason that they think IHL does require human judgment is precisely because it expects that uh, the decision makers will be held accountable. And if you're talking about an AI, that's not a decision maker that can be held accountable.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I think this is, this is a, a great point, but I think it, it, in some senses, um, ignores, again, current weapon systems on the battlefield. We have a lot of weapon systems on the battlefield uh, that will return fire based simply on the parabolic rate of an incoming missile, right? And that's all they look at, and it's automatic, and there's no human making any decisions. And there can't be, because it'd be impractical to do so. But that doesn't mean there's no accountability. The commander who employs that weapon system has an obligation to understand that system and to employ it in compliance with what it has been approved to do by those who have done the weapons review process. The same thing would be true of autonomous weapons and those relying on artificial intelligence or machine learning. There are people who are in the process of building that software, of building that hardware. They, accountability could reach back to them. There are people who are are, uh, employing that. Accountability could reach back to them. There are commanders who are then seeing the results and either pulling them off the battlefield or continuing to employ them. Accountability can be there. So the fact that, that there's no human in the head of the autonomous weapon system and making these decisions doesn't mean there's not accountability. There is certainly accountability, and you know, I mean, Laura Dickinson has written a really great article on on uh, administrative accountability. Even if there's not criminal liability, there are other ways to get accountable with autonomous weapon systems through administrative accountability, making the state responsible for things that uh, weapon systems might do. There, there's I think if you take a broader view of accountability, that is not an issue. And the states, to be honest, the states at the CCW who are still very much on board with continuing to test and research and develop, have acknowledged this accountability issue and simply say, you're taking too narrow view of accountability. There are humans involved all along the life cycle of these weapons. And just because it's not involved in the specific instant that you're worried about doesn't mean there's not human involvement. And there's nothing that, I mean, in some cases, humans would only inhibit a weapon system because of their lack of speed, their lack of ability to process information, et cetera. So the accountability issue, if if narrowly looked at, might cause some problems. I think if you look at accountability in a broader and more holistic sense, there's absolutely no issues with accountability.
0: Right. I, th- I think that that's probably quite right in the broad sense, but I think that the, the narrow sense that people are thinking about it in relates to the enforcement of IHL and particularly the holding people criminally liable in the event that that a war crime is committed. And and there you can see, I think, problems arising, right? If there's been some incident in which an autonomous weapon has killed civilians in a manner that would constitute a grave breach of the Geneva Conventions, a violation of the principle of distinction. Uh, And the question is, well, Who's accountable for this, and who can be charged? Uh, is it the the guy who wrote the code? Is it? It might be. It's it's always ultimately the commander who
1: employs that weapon system, right? If the commander who employs that weapon system did so in uh, in a way that would make him liable, then he would absolutely be liable for individual criminal responsibility, uh, no doubt about it. It might be the code writer. Uh, it might be with autonomous weapons. You would, you would go back that far and say, you wrote a flawed code, and there you go. Now, we don't normally use negligence as a standard in any kind of war crimes, right? right? So, right. Uh, so the issue won't be negligence, um, but it shouldn't be negligence just as it's not with humans, right? So I think that, that we can even at the point of a selection and attack, I think we can find accountable persons whether criminally or administratively or both.
0: So let's, let's circle back to that, the argument that uh, was the second uh, prong of, of one of your answers, that, that is that autonomous weapons systems are likely to be more compliant with IHL, or, or that the use of autonomous weapons are going to allow armed forces to be more compliant with IHL, that you're going to have less of the kinds of human errors and human uh, mistakes that lead to violations of IHL. And so, I guess there's two sort of responses to this, is first of all, to challenge whether that's correct. But the second one, I think, is perhaps a bit more interesting in the sense that, let's assume that that's right. And I can totally see why one might think that autonomous weapons, especially autonomous weapons that have AI, and machine learning and are able to make decisions, as you say, that remove all of the, the foibles of, of human judgment in making decisions and are able to make decisions much faster. Let's assume that they are going to be more compliant with the IHL. I think people would still be uncomfortable on an ethical level with that being an argument for and therefore embracing more and more weapons that employ AI and and autonomous systems, in that it becomes easier to kill, it becomes less, in some ways, it removes some of the moral uh, uh, analysis in the the act of killing, it removes the risk, you know, so there's already an argument that the use of of UAVs, uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, drones to kill is ethically problematic because it completely re- it removes all risk to the, to the people that are, are operating the drone and makes killing that much easier. I mean, the use of autonomous weapons will make it just all that much more easy, not just practically, but ethically, right? There's, there's no human being now pulling the trigger, right? You just put the, the drone in operation and it's killing people on your behalf without you having to make any decisions at all. And so I think people would argue that this is, you know, embracing this on the grounds that it's going to be more compliant with the law of armed conflict is nonetheless problematic.
1: Yes, and I think this, again, is a really good argument. Let let me go back to your first one where I think, where I say I think that weapon systems will be better. Let me just say that that under a weapons review, if they're not better than humans, then we should never deploy them, right? I mean, under any circumstances. So. The only way we should deploy these weapon systems is if we think they're going to lead to greater compliance with the law. So now coming to your, your ethics uh, issue. Um, so again, remember in my paper, I'm responding to the legal argument that the law requires right. uh, human error and judgment. Um, but from an ethical issue, uh, it may be that we will never be comfortable with that and that we will develop weapon systems. Uh, that are more compliant with the law of armed conflict but but ethically we will never get to the point where we feel like we can employ them and i I could totally see that scenario playing out um, on the other hand the, the moral restraints on war are usually not uh, are usually not the key point at the tactical level that 's i mean you know whether, whether you 're going to go to war or not is a is a Political decision that is made at a much higher level than that, and and I, you know, that's where those people would have to make that decision. The point of an autonomous weapon system at the tactical level is, again, if you take the human foibles out, including survivability, a, uh, an autonomous weapon system can afford to take much more circumstantial, problematic issues. It can be fired on a uh, mistake, it can have all these bad, bad things happen. But because it's more survivable, it can take the time to ensure it's making a right decision with respect to selection and engagement. Um, So in a sense, you might be able to build more of a moral pause into the response in a battlefield environment than you can with humans.
0: Okay.
1: I will just add, you can build the autonomous weapon system in a way that if it had, that if it met certain criteria, it would not engage until it had reached back and received uh, the answer from a human who is exercising judgment, right? I mean, there's lots of ways to, to build Uh, Ethics into these autonomous weapon systems—they're not—they're not—they don't have to be a launch and forget weapon system. They could still really be involved in human machine teaming, which is which is where I think most developing countries are going. They're not going into fully autonomous weapons uh, that have no human input. They're going into human machine teaming. But uh, I mean, my article again was was looking at the far the far out options. Right, right.
0: I I mean, just on on the the one point that you make—that that that really the moral imperatives in deciding on targeting and so forth, really don't operate so much at the tactical level. I think that that's that's right. But it nonetheless has implications for the strategic or even the of Bellum decision making about whether you're going to use force. Right. Uh, it's a lot easier to decide to use force if doing so is not going to put, you know, very many of your your people at risk or any of your people. I mean, we can think of a future in which wars are being fought by robots at least on our side. Uh, well, you know, lots of people are dying on the other side, uh, but we can engage in that use of force without putting any of our own people at risk. That's a much easier calculus, right? And not necessarily a morally better calculus, but it's a politically much easier calculus. And yeah. it has a host of ethical implications, which brings me right back to, I think, you know, where we started, which is, and I appreciate that your, your paper really is focusing on whether IHL, the law of armed conflict, LOAC, requires human judgment and therefore whether it prohibits the use of or even the development of autonomous weapon systems. And, and you, you know, I think, quite persuasively go through the argument for why that is not the case. But you then, as I say, you sort of then go the extra step and, and normatively say, and therefore, there should be no limitation on research and development. And, and I guess I, I want to push back again, And reach for the ethical argument and say, well, it may be one thing to focus purely on law and, and frankly, one narrow legal regime, the IHL, and saying, well, these weapons are not prohibited now, fair enough. But to then make the normative argument that, therefore, we should research and develop them uh, without limitation, I don't think you can make that argument without actually bringing in both other legal regimes and even the ethical considerations, like because precisely because I think that people would argue that there is this qualitative difference about this kind of weapon system. This is not just, uh, you know, you have a little part in your paper where you look at some of the historical development of weapons that have face pushback and faced calls for bans, like hot air balloons and submarines and so forth. But this is something that's qualitatively different. It's, it's violating Asimov's first law. It's, you know, it's, it's raising the specter of robots killing humans. And so I think people would say, no, before we cross that Rubicon, we need to have this conversation. We need to decide as an ethical matter, whether we want to cross that Rubicon before it's decided for us by the R and D guys.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, and I think there's a lot of merit to that argument. And and I am obviously much more, I have spent much more time thinking about the LOAC implications of this than I have the ethical uh, implications. And and I acknowledge that that would absolutely have to be a discussion that was had. But again, I, I can say that, that having been on the other end of people trying to kill me, it made no difference to me whether it was a robot or a human I was uh, I would be just as dead <laughs> either way. And and so uh, so to the extent that, that you're taking that view, I don't think it's from the view of the target because the target is going to be dead either way. It's got to be from the, the view of the shooter and the nation that sponsors that shooter. And is there some moral or ethical constraints that you want to place on that or that that nation will uh, accept? And those are discussions that absolutely uh, should be had. But... They, sh- they will be better had when we understand the full capacities of these weapon systems, when we understand what we're really talking about. The, it, that kind of a decision as to whether it's an ethical issue to employ a weapon system that utilizes machine learning is a more wholesome discussion, knowing what the capabilities of that weapon system could or would be.
0: So I guess yeah, I'm not really thinking of it in terms of, you know, from the perspective of either the victim or, or the target or the shooter, I think that some of these ethical arguments are sort of more taken from a global perspective of you know, what kind of what kind of armed conflict do we want to have in our future, and is the development of this kind of weapon system potentially going to take humanity down a path of of a kind of armed conflict that we really just do not want to contemplate. And, and I guess the last, I mean, it leads me to maybe the last question, um, which is, I think that a lot of our discussion has been predicated on, you know, sort of looking at this from the perspective of the United States, or a developed country, and, and certainly most of the countries that are engaged in this debate, at least from the perspective of wanting to engage in research and development, are developed countries. They have the capability of developing these kinds of autonomous weapons. But I think we would be remiss not to think about well, what happens if these weapons are in the hands of a, a not so developed uh, state or a non-state actor, for example. You now, I'm sure you've seen the, the crazy YouTube video called Slaughterbots, yeah. which contemplates this pretty horrific uh, future where, you know, anyone and everyone can be deploying these nano drones with lethal effect. And the question arises, well, again, when we're thinking about do we want to engage in this kind of research and development, do we want to, on the contrary, use international law to impose limitations now on the extent to which countries can engage in this kind of research and development? Do we need to be thinking about, well, it's not just us, like what happens when ISIS is deploying these kinds of autonomous weapon systems?
1: Yeah, so I have seen slaughterbots, and we could have a long discussion about how I think that's designed uh, around how I think that really puts across a false message. But <laughs> um, but but your point is is uh, is is a good point. But we don't we have that same problem now? I mean, look, we're doing this with nuclear weapons all the time, right? Kind of trying to control who gets a hold of nuclear weapons. If every battle that goes on almost has some asymmetric aspect to it, right? Any. Any military that comes up against the United States or China or Russia or Israel is going to be outnumbered and outclassed, right? That's just what it, that's the truth of our material development at the moment. Does autonomous weapons significantly change that asymmetry? I don't think so. And uh, does it change it in a way that is a fundamental paradigm global change? Again, I don't think so. It doesn't change it any more than nuclear weapons. I think I would be much more worried if ISIS had a nuclear weapon than if they had a uh, an autonomous weapon. So in my mind, that is not uh, the, the great fear. It's certainly a consideration. Um, but if we can build these weapon systems so that they're, they lead to better LOAC results, then maybe we should you know, I mean, this is I don't I don't actually mean this because I don't I don't think we're going to be any, any weapon systems to ISIS. But but wouldn't we be better off if ISIS was employing those weapon systems, assuming that they applied the LOAC better? Right. So. uh so I think that that, again, is an issue that we can deal with through uh, weapons review and weapons control, and it doesn't mean that we should not research and develop a system.
0: All right. Well, listen, Eric, I have taken up a large amount of your time. I know you're teaching during this time. Where exactly are you teaching again?
1: I'm, I'm at the Naval War College. I'm, I'm teaching for the Defense Institute for International Legal Studies, or DILS, and, and it's a great organization that uh, basically goes around the world and tries to talk about human rights with all kinds of military and government leaders. But, but I'm happy to talk to you. I mean, you, you, we talked about Asimov, we talked about Star Wars. You, you hit all my great things, Craig. I'm, I'm happy to talk with you.
0: <laughs> well, listen, before I let you go, as I, I indicated in my email, I'm going to ask you to recommend three books or articles, uh, something somewhat relating to what we've been talking about in the laws of armed conflict generally to our audience.
1: Other than Asimov, you mean?
0: You, well, Asimov can be one of them. I mean, I think that that's fair game.
1: Uh, so uh, the three I thought of, I mean, some of these, are, for people who are really into this topic, they will have read probably all three of these. But for people who are just kind of tangentially in this, they may not have. So these, these recommendations are really uh, are centered on people who may just be dabbling and want to get more into it. Perfect. So for the book, I would pick Paul Schar's Army of None. I think that, that uh, he is very thoughtful in what he says. He played a role uh, in the U.S.'s policy. I think that book is a great start to identify the issues, uh, and and I think I mean he clearly has an agenda, but I think he identifies uh, you know multiple sides of how to look at the, the thought process on these. Uh, in terms of government statements, uh, in addition to everything that's going on in the CCW, which I would recommend uh, your listeners uh, read and pay attention to, I think again one of the foundational documents is the U.S. Department of Defense Directive 3000.09. Um, that lays out the U.S. position. It talks about human control. It talks about where human control fits in and accountability and predictability. It, it gives the U.S. policy on all these issues. And agreed, the U.S. is one of the more aggressive uh, countries on this issue, but at least it stakes out a position that then your readers can thoughtfully uh, consider and, and move from. And then in terms of law review articles, uh, I've mentioned Chris Jenks several times. He and Ryan L- Lavoie, his they've got an article Uh, or not an article, but a a post on the ICRC Humanitarian Law and Policy blog uh, called Machine Autonomy and the Constant Care Obligation. And in fact, I guess I would recommend everything on the ICRC Humanitarian Law and Policy blog. I don't necessarily agree with everything that is said there, obviously, but I think it's been a very thorough and wholesome discussion. And the ICRC is just, I mean, they're just great. Even when I disagree with them, I think they're great. So, uh, So I think that that blog is a great, place to go. And, and they update it routinely. So it's a great place to go if you want to keep
0: updated. That's great. Well, listen, thanks so much, Eric. This has been wonderful. And uh, good luck with the rest of the course that you're teaching. And uh, we'll catch up with you soon.
1: Thanks, Craig. Good luck
0: to you as well. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Chib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. You can find links to the material discussed today, including the reading recommendations, on our website at jibjabpodcast.com. Be sure to check out our next episode in which I'll be speaking with Monica Hakimi of the University of Michigan School of Law on her fascinating work on how informal regulation emanating from the UN Security Council should be understood to inform the Usad Belum regime. As always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, wherever, whatever social media you use. And do follow us on Twitter at JibJabPodcast. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Craig Martin. The music is by Dream Machine, used on the Creative Commons license. Until next time, stay safe.